Helping Families Be Happy podcast, where we explore the often messy world of family, love, and relationships. I am your host for this podcast, Dr. Carla Marie Manley, a practicing clinical psychologist, wellness advocate, and author based in Sonoma County, California. I've teamed up with Familius Publishing to bring you nourishing real-life information about love, family, relationships, and life. And now, I am absolutely thrilled to introduce today's guest, Owen Dara, who will be talking with us about how he uses his creative talents, and there are many of them, to help families be happy. So, now I introduce Owen Dara, and he is a filmmaker, a musician, a writer, and a comedian. What a wealth of love and joy you bring to the podcast today. Thank you, Owen. Well, thank you, Dr. Carla. Thank you for having me. I always feel pressure when people say that I'm a comedian in the intro because I think, oh, no, now they expect me to be funny. <laughs> and of course, it's whenever the mood takes you, because in, in this kind of scenario, it's not an act. We're just talking about our lives, right? Yes, and that's, to me, the most beautiful part about doing podcasts is when I meet people and work with them spontaneously, and we're mm -hmm. talking about life, and if something's funny, it's funny. If it's sad, it's sad. If it's joyful, it's joyful. And so with that, tell me, tell us a little bit about what makes you, you. Well, I've always been an artist, even though I didn't acknowledge it when I was growing up because it wasn't something that was openly supported in my household as a, as a profession, you know? So you always had to study to be a doctor or an accountant or a builder or something that could make money. But as an artist, it was never considered or put forth to me by anybody in my family or community that it, it could actually be a profession. You could actually grow up to do this. And if I had, I believe, if I had been told, okay, so you you are artistic and you're interested in the arts, this could be a profession. Why don't you study and, and work at this? And not that my parents didn't encourage me to play musical instruments or be involved in drama groups or whatever, they absolutely did. But because it was always an, something that would be an addendum to whatever I would actually do with my life. I never thought that I would actually grow up to do it. I, I you know, and, and, and this part of me that still fights against it because I kind of wake up in the morning sometimes and go, oh, I have to work on this film or I have to do, you know, some post-production or catch up in this writing. And I kind of catch myself going, oh, I'm an artist. Like, I, I kind of feel like in a sense, my, my parents' voice are like, well, no, no, that's not a real profession. Uh, not, not a real job. <laughs> you know, I kind of find that, even though I work very hard at it. I mean, anything that we're passionate about, as you well know, being a writer, we work very hard at our craft. And it's, it, it's not always easy, but we do it. And it feels sometimes more of a workload than, you know, a quote, real profession, as, as people might understand a real profession. So where did you grow up? Where's grew, where did you, where were you born? I was born in Cork, Ireland. And I uh, started the first six years of my life in a little village called Lep, uh, which is in West Cork. It's a bigger village than it used to be, but it was a very, very small village. And when I was six years of age, we moved to the city, to Cork City. 
And so most of my life, uh, most of my childhood, I grew up in Cork City, and that's where my family still is. And so in Cork. Yes. Yes. And how did you come to the U.S.? Well, in a very roundabout way, <laughs> Dr. Carla, um, I came first when I was 20 on a, a J-1 visa, which gave me four months of time in America with the ability to work. It actually was a work permit, but it was temporary. And I came, I worked for a while in California and San Francisco, and I also worked in New York City in Brooklyn. And after that, I, I had to leave. You know, four months later, I had to leave the country and I went to work in London because in those days, it, Ireland was in a deep recession. It was very, very hard to find work there. So a lot of people were immigrating. So because I couldn't emigrate to the US, I went to work in London. Didn't really that didn't really didn't resonate with me. And so I went back to Ireland for a while and then I kind of went traveling by myself when I was 21. And that went on for years on end. And I never really went back. I, I you know, lived in Europe for a while, traveling around, playing music on the street with my guitar. Then I, I crossed Asia, which took me, you know, five or six months as I did almost everything overland and I ended up in Australia and I worked in Australia for a bit and then ended up emigrating there. And I, I spent actually on and off about a decade in Australia, which shocked me because I thought I was going for a year at the most. And then 10 years later, I was like, wow, I, I live here now. And then I always wanted to come back, particularly to California. For one thing, I had a brother living here in San Francisco. He no longer lives here, but he used to. And also just that summer when I was 20 years old and it was my first time out of Ireland and I was in particularly my time in California, I just, it was a whole new world to me, the kind of freedom, um, the choices. And, and it's not that we didn't have freedom in Ireland, but at that time it was a hugely insular country controlled by the church. There was one way this is what we had to do. I mean, Protestants were exotic where I grew up. I mean, we didn't have the multiculturalism that I came across here and the open-mindedness. And it, it was just an incredible experience. And so in the back of my mind, I always thought, I want to go back to California. And in my 30s, uh, I applied for a green card and I thought, you know what, I'll try it. And I ended up getting selected and, I, you know, I was called for an interview and they look at your credentials and they decide if you would actually be an appropriate immigrant. And I was sanctioned as I basically got the go ahead to like, you can go live in America. So I was like, well, why don't I try it? And so over here I came and, you know, I wish I had date smart that book at that time because I was single <laughs> and, and my relationships were really not going anywhere. And then, of course, you know, I, I met the love of my life who was also living here. And then there was no leaving beyond that. It's sort of I felt like this was home. And as much as I thought that I would only be here somewhat temporarily, <laughs> uh, I think this are. is home. Yeah, here it's home now. And I love it. I'm, I mean, I've never regretted moving here. And home is Southern California now. Yes, in Pasadena. In Pasadena. Yeah. So oh, what a beautiful journey. Just what a beautiful journey. It sounds amazing and exotic and inspiring and wonderful. And everything that somebody who is 
told to have a linear path should not do. (laughs) Yes, amazing. So may I ask you a question then, when you were doing your different jobs here and there, were Mm -hmm. you always in the creative realm? Was at that point you were working on your music and your comedy and your, what were you Mm -hmm. doing? Well, I, I, was definitely not always in the creative arts. As I said, when I left school, I thought it was just not possible. I started working as a car mechanic and I did an apprenticeship as a mechanic and because I had an interest in motorcycles and how things worked. And I really didn't like school. I didn't like, you know, learning by rote and a lot of the stuff. I just didn't have an, they didn't have an arts program, which would have been what I would have been interested in. And so when I left school, I started working as a car mechanic, which was a good job considering the recession that was going on. We were all told basically we needed professions, you know, real professions. And my my mother's family, her parents were both dentists. So they, you know, she wanted me and my grandparents wanted me to go into the dental profession. <laughs> so, and I, of course I thought about it, but then I, I was a huge, huge disappointment when I said I'm leaving school and I'm going to be a car mechanic, it was like, what? And, and in retrospect, I could look at it as a mistake because after I finished the apprenticeship, I just said, well, this life is not for me. And I, I didn't have the education to really go do anything else. And so when I came to America at that time, I worked for a while in, in a dealership in Brooklyn as a mechanic. And then I worked in construction out here in California, in San Francisco. And it was only after I did my stint in London, where I came back to Ireland. And I said, you know, I thought I'm, I'm just not going to be happy. I, I suffer I'm very prone to depression. And I kept just getting depressed with everything else that I was doing. I tried other jobs. And, and I just thought I, I, I have to try to at least express this creativity, whether it becomes a profession or not. And I did it in its most basic form initially is I took my guitar, which I wasn't very proficient on at the time, but I was 21 years of age. And I took a ferry from Cork to France. And my first night in Paris for the very first time in my life, I stood out on the street with my guitar playing music People threw me some money and I thought, well, this is not like a profession, but I can survive doing this. And I traveled around Europe playing guitar and it was very fulfilling. I mean, difficult because, you know, sometimes it rains on you. Sometimes nobody listens. Sometimes your voice gets tired, your hands get tired or whatever. So it is work. It's not just, you know, oh, I'm playing guitar. How fun. It is like that for maybe the first, you know, 40 minutes or something. But if you're playing for hours just so you can get enough money to buy a meal because literally I was living hand to mouth doing that and so then I started to think well if I can make money doing it this way maybe there's another maybe I can take it further and so then that's what started me thinking that maybe and and I didn't feel like I could follow that pursuit in my hometown because I didn't think I had the support of people. I didn't think people would believe that I could do it because I I didn't really believe that I could do it. And it wasn't one of those prodigies which show this prowess in music or acting or whatever. I, I, I wasn't that person that people went, oh my God, this guy should be in this world. But in my mind, I felt like 
there was something in me that felt like maybe I could. And so I continued to work at it and work at it. And I did do other jobs when I couldn't play on the street anymore. I started doing, you know, I, I worked in restaurants. Uh, I was a dishwasher. I was a waiter for a while, a bartender. I worked as an extra on, on film sets. And I ended up working again in Australia when I first arrived as a car mechanic, which I was very happy to have that profession yeah. because you could go anywhere in the world and get a job doing that because generally speaking, there was a shortage. And as much as I didn't want to do it, it got me out of a jam in, you know, multiple times where I needed a job. And, you know, at 21, that was the last time I ever did it. I just said, you know what? I'm not doing this anymore. And I started doing other jobs. And then I ended up pursuing work in the creative arts. And, and I ended up getting into a college in Australia. And I, I, I studied for four years at, at Melbourne University, which actually was so eye-opening because now I was a university student at like 24, which is kind of old to go to college, especially when you dropped out of high school at 15 <laughs> or you dropped out of school at 15. And so I studied there, um, you know, drama and music uh, and media studies. And it was where I was first exposed to the art of filmmaking. And there were plenty of people in that program that didn't have, didn't put the restrictions on themselves that I put on there, mm -hmm. you know, that I would say, yeah, but like music, like we're studying music, but it's not a profession. And, and, and the other kids, like who were, I'd say kids, I was 24 and some of them were 18 or 19. And they were like, well, of course it is. I'd be like, really? It is? Yes. You got validated. I, I think so. And then during that period, when I was studying, I started doing stand-up comedy. And then that opened up a professional world for me because I wasn't getting work as a musician. I don't think feel like I was good enough at the time. But within about six to eight months of doing stand-up comedy, I was getting a lot of professional engagements. And then for the next 80 years or so, it came became uh, my primary source of earning. And so I, I was kind of stunned, actually, the opportunities that opened for me and how that actually made me think, oh, actually, OK, this is actually my profession. And then I, I continued, of course, to work on the music and to work on the writing. And then, you know, when I moved here uh, and I partnered up with, with Jessica, the love of my life I mentioned earlier, <laughs> we started making films together. And, and then that, of course, that opened up a, an, a, another new world for, for me and also for her. And so I, I feel like, you know, af after all these years, I just, I just do it. And sometimes good things happen with it. Sometimes a great deal comes along with your film or, or you know, sometimes you get a fantastic review. Sometimes somebody books you at a gig that, that you know is very lucrative and sometimes it's a struggle and that's just what we've chosen it's not the linear path that you were referring to earlier but i it's the only path at this point in my life that i can follow you know i i i don't feel like and if i were to follow a different path it would be in tandem with with the path that i've chosen yes it's interesting listening to you talk how you took the road less traveled, the road yeah. that called to you, not the linear path, and how much 
it seems even looking at it in the rearview mirror that if you had taken a linear path of being a dentist, which by the way, is one of the professions with the highest rates of suicide, right? Yes. I don't, yes, that if I you think. had taken that kind of path, how much more difficult it would be because you were quashing what your calling is. And you're, you're, you're a real life Renaissance man with, let's add carpenter to it and car mechanic and all of the other you know beautiful talents that you have inside of you and that you're able to share with the world. I think it's amazing that you've had such courage. Well, thank you. And, you know, when you talk about the suicide rates of dentists, like I get it. And I I have actually been in a position where, you know, I I have been, I don't know how many steps away from, from being in that place, a little too close for comfort, I will say, uh, because I do suffer from depression. And I think if I were a dentist, if I had become a dentist and that were my life, not that there's anything wrong with it. I mean, my God, my dentist, I I love him. He's in his seventies and he's still doing it and he loves it. He's passionate about it. And he was just telling me, I was just there the other day and he said that he takes HMOs, not because he'll make money from it, but there's so many people who can't afford dentistry that he will take their HMOs because a lot of dentists won't. And so I see someone like that with that wonderful passion for his profession. It, it, it just wouldn't have been me. And, and I think, you know, as much as I didn't want to work in construction and I didn't want to work in a car mechanic as a car mechanic, it, it's given me that kind of uh, understanding of how things work. So if something goes wrong with my house, I can fix it. Or even if I bring someone in to fix it, which I, which I never do because <laughs> I just go, why would I pay someone when I can do it myself? But even in that situation, I understand if the person is telling me the truth or not about what is wrong with my car or what is wrong, yeah. uh, you know, with, with, and, and that in, in and of itself is, is a gift, uh, you know, for which I'm grateful. Of course, I would much have rather, you know, I, I see these people now who are teenagers and they're following their passions and they're doing great in, in the world of, of entertainment or, or whatever it is, their passion their passion is for them. And I go, my God, like what I wouldn't have done to discover that at that time and not have spent my, you know, all those years being miserable in a profession that was completely wrong for me. But as you said, everybody's path is different. And that would have been a linear path for me had I discovered it when I was that young, you know. And I may never have left Ireland, uh, which it, it would not have been a bad thing. I mean, it's a wonderful place to live in so many ways. But if I had found my true calling there, possibly never would have left. And then I would have missed out on so many experiences. Including the love of your life, I must say. Exactly. <laughs> so let me, if you don't mind, for our listeners, actually for me to, to know a little bit more about you, mm-hmm. when you struggle with depression, and mm-hmm. particularly with the pandemic, as so many people who have never had depression are struggling with it, never struggled with suicidality, are struggling mm-hmm. with it. And of course, our podcast is about making ha- families be happy. And being happy isn't something we can do or not do. We just can't wake up and say, oh, I'm going to be happy today. So I think an important part of being happy is understanding that there are periods 
where mm-hmm. depression does come up, mm-hmm. where thoughts, not that we don't want treatment, not that we don't want support, but where suicidality, we need to be able to work with that in order to move to the other side to find those spaces of happiness. What has your journey been like? What has worked for you and not worked for you? Well, I'm so glad that you're asking me this question because it's such an important topic and it's so taboo. So, I mean, I find even, you know, over the years where where I have said, oh, I can't go to this party because I'm depressed. I'm actually too depressed to to be in the company of other people. And my friend or partner or whoever would say, oh, okay, we'll just say that you have the flu or you have a cold. Mm. You know, the this whole term that people use, oh, such and such admits that he suffered from depression. So that verb, I think we need to take out because you admit that you did something wrong. I robbed a bank. I cheated on my spouse. Okay, that's something you admit. I suffer from depression. Oh, he admitted he suffered from depression. He or she admitted. Well, you don't admit that you have cancer. I mean, it's not, oh, they admit if they had cancer. No, they told me they had cancer. And I think what people who don't suffer from depression, the, the people who are blessed, in my opinion, and, and, and lucky in so many ways, they don't understand what depression is. And I've had deep conversations with my good friend who has he's been in and out of hospital diagnosed with manic depression and what people say to him what you need is a good holiday or is what you would say in in america what you need is a good vacation and he he told me and i said yes i know people say that but that would make us feel even worse because then we're sitting let's say on a beach in hawaii looking out at the ocean feeling literally suicidal a lot of the time And then chastising ourselves for feeling terrible in this wonderful surrounding. And and so for me, and to get back to, I I guess, your question about what works for me, when I first got hit with very, very um, deep depression where I was suicidal and I, I started with not caring if I died to hoping that I died, to finding ways that I could end my own life. So I was a teenager, I was maybe 17. Uh, I had experimented with some drugs, which opened, I think it opened portals that had I had pushed down all those years. Cause I think I was somewhat of a morose child anyway. My, my parents told me that and my aunt and uncle, especially, she said, you know, my aunt said, we would take you places and there'd be something going on, like a, something funny. And, and we'd say to you, did you have a good time? Because you'd always look so, like you had the, the weight of the world on your shoulders. So it, it's something that's always been with me ever since a little kid. But when it hit me as a teen, I thought that I would never, ever, ever get through it. Mm-hmm. And I went to see a doctor. I, and this, this will blow your mind, Dr. Carla, or maybe not, but it was recommended by a teacher of mine or a headmaster at a certain school that I was at to my mother that I seek professional help. And I guess I was 14. And they said, if you don't find him help, it's really going to come back on him when he's older. He needs help now. 
And, and this, wow. Okay, so this, so what happened is my mother, and I love my mother, she wants the best for her children. She still does. And I admire what she did and what she's gone through and, you know, what she did for us. So she consulted somebody else who kind of is more knowledgeable about the world. And he said, well, if he gets help now, if he gets psychiatric help, it'll be on his permanent record. And if he's going for a job, they can look through the records and say, oh, no, he's got mental health problems. He's been diagnosed with depression. He was on medication, hospitalized or whatever. So it's going to be a black mark against him for the rest of his life. So my mother said, well, obviously, you know, thinking about what's best for me in my future, let's not do that. Let's just get on with it. I didn't know that until I was an adult and, you know, going through other bouts of depression and talking to my mother about it. And she had told me that. And, you know, I get it. But now in our society where, of course, all of those records are kept hidden, and this was in Ireland. I don't know what it was like in America at that time, but in Ireland, certainly employers would always check. And the person that she consulted was an employer and he was knowledgeable about such things. And so if I had gotten help, then I don't think it would have cured me. I think I still, you know, maybe I, I think I still would have gone through depression. And so I absolutely wanted to end my life there was no question because i thought if this is going to be my life and i hear things about your childhood they're the happiest years of your life and i remember thinking that going what's the rest of my life going to be like if this is the happiest what's the rest and i was i was miserable like literally suicidal and so growing up in the catholic church you know we are taught that Suicide is the worst sin of all. Like if you murder somebody, you can repent and find forgiveness. If you take your own life, there's no repentance that's possible. No coming back from that, no. No, there's no coming back. And so I was brought up um, strict Catholic. And of course, you know, you get, some people might say brainwashed or however you want to say, but you believe it so fully and wholeheartedly that it stopped me from taking that action. Now, I told my mother that years later, and she said, that's worth talking about or writing about because that speaks well of religion and the teaching. <laughs> of course, what I didn't say at the time, and maybe what I might say now looking back is part of my Catholic education was maybe one <laughs> made me brought me to that place because you know there's the guilt and the shame and the self-loathing and all of those things that that at least were in me i can't speak for my siblings or or, or my peers at the time but for me a lot of the the self-hatred came from that education and now it's completely different i mean my nieces and nephews are brought up you know, in Catholic schools over there, because they're, most schools are Catholic. It's not like here where you say Catholic school. Over there, it's just school. Okay. <laughs> they have religious education, but they don't have the same, you know, God-fearing attitude that we had and, and, and that self-hatred. And so I went through another depression after when I was working in London, 
when I was 20, I went through a very serious depression and I came back to Ireland and for six months or so, I was seeking treatment. I went to a psychologist for the first time and she, you know, tried to guide me in, in certain ways, but I was very closed off. I was ashamed. Yes. You know, even seeing a psychologist at that time in that country was deemed to be weak. People did not seek out mental health help in in those days. It, it was, you know, it was seen to be something that was for the weak or the foreign. <laughs> we all knew that, of course, in America, people had therapists because we would see American TV. Well, my therapist said they would drop it like it's, you know, my dentist or whatever. But in Ireland, you have a therapist. What? So. I was seeing a psychologist and she was trying to get out of me why I was depressed. And I just kept saying, I don't know. And she would ask me about my parents, my family, and I wouldn't want to disclose any of that information because it was so private and people were so private about their life at that point. And I was embarrassed that I was depressed. I didn't tell my friends. I, I, I stayed home. I made excuses because the attitude was as, as I alluded to before with my friend, where they would say, you need a good holiday, was, well, what's wrong with you? We all get sad, but it's not sadness. Not sad. Yeah. No, it's, it's clinical where, and something I read, because I've read a number of books, of course, you, of course yours also date smart, and, <laughs> but a number of books, one that I read by, is it Michael Steinan? Is that his name? The guy who wrote Sophie's Choice, who talks about his depression, or it might've been a different book, where they said the thing about depression is you're, you get so incapacitated that if you knew the cure for all your maladies was just 10 feet away from the bed that you're lying in, you couldn't find the energy or the motivation to go over there to get it yourself. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, that is so true. So... I grappled with depression uh, throughout my 20s too, obviously. Uh, being an entertainer helped a lot because being forced to get up in front of people when I had professional engagements and express, express myself helped get it out of me, helped bring me. And I knew if I could force myself to go to that place and get up on stage. And the last thing you want to do when you're depressed is be the life of the party in front of the audience. Your job is basically to make their life better, not yours. And so I would find that I would have to force myself. I would be backstage just, just not wanting to even move. And then I'd hear my name called and I would go out and I'd grab the mic and I'd start with one of my stock jokes that I knew would work. And once I got my first laugh, the energy was just so intoxicating. I would, I would start to lift myself out of it. And by the end of the show, not always, but a lot of the times I would feel like, oh my God, I'm cured. It's cured me. But of course that is a temporary solution. It's like drinking when you're depressed. Certainly, yes, oftentimes you will feel better, but the next morning you're stuck with a hangover. And it was the same with me as a performer. I'd be like, oh my God, I feel so good. And then the next morning I would wake up and I would have taken two steps back from the day before, but I would have had that 
reprieve for that that one evening, which is a gift in, in and of itself, but then I would have to deal with it again. So it's not, it's certainly not a cure, um, just like alcohol, because, you know, you, you, I certainly, alcohol worked for me, you know, during those times also, but as a friend of mine, a much older friend of mine said, what I tell my children, who children, her children were about my age, she said, when you open the medicine cabinet and you see pills that are like sleeping pills mm -hmm. for sleep, you see um, headache pills for pain or whatever, pain relief pills for the relief of headache. And then I want you to see alcohol the same way. And instead of the label of the beer or the vodka or whatever it may be, you see written on that label the name of it, like Smirnoff, for example. And I'm not <laughs> dissing Smirnoff here, but for example, Smirnoff or Guinness, and under it you want to you want to read depressant. And I thought, my God, and I always think that because there are times now, of course, I still, you, when you suffer from depression, as you know, it's a lifelong thing. It's you're never cured. You just learn to deal with it better as time goes on. But I now see uh, beer <laughs> or any kind of alcohol when I feel like that. And I see depressant and I put it back and I go, I'm leaving it in the fridge. And now I have different ways of dealing with it. I'm I'm more savvy and more privy to knowledge of what makes me feel better from my experience and from what I've read. And also there, there, there really is comfort in the understanding that we're not alone. You know, one in four people is the statistic, which you you will know this better than I as to whether I'm correct on this or not. But the statistic that I read recently was one in four people suffer from a form of depression. Absolutely. And that's what's what they have statistics on. So you're you're right. And so what about all the people who the stigma is so strong where they don't come forward or we lose them along the way and they never become identified because of the stigma. And yes. so they, I am just so grateful for everything you're sharing so honestly and how much it will help our listeners who, because as, as much as in America, you know, a therapist here, a therapist there, right? There are still so many people who believe yeah. that depression is something to be gotten over that why don't you just be happy? Why don't you put on a smiley face? Why don't you go take the antidepressant? And yeah. I've done enough seminars to know, fortunately, I've never su suffered from, you know, depression and you know grief, yeah, certainly, but um, depression, no. And when, but I had a doctor explain it to me once that over his years of work, he realized that people would come in for an antidepressant and they would want it and he would give it to them. They come back and they'd say, it's not working, it's not working. And what he was able to help them understand, which really helped me understand, is that it's as though you have a hundred pound weight mm -hmm. on your neck, your shoulders all the time. Mm -hmm. And an antidepressant might make it feel more like an 80 pound weight or a wow. 70 pound weight. Yeah. And that you will never get rid of the weight Mm -hmm. You may never get rid of it, but, you know, I don't want to say you will never, but you may never get rid of the weight, but mm -hmm. knowing that that, and then that will help other people who expect someone to oh, get the weight off your shoulders. No, it's a part of my being that yes. weight on me. And mm -hmm. that's what you've said. 
you were a melancholy child. Mm -hmm. And I, I understand the part that religion, specifically that that religion can certainly play a part in indoctrinating you to believe in shame and all, mm -hmm. all sorts of things that are definitely a place where depression can grow. Yeah, and, and I think that other, I, I mean, that is very well and succinctly put about the 75 pound weight or the, the 80 pound weight, because I, I haven't, I've never thought of it of that, that way before. And I think each time we go through a phase of depression, and you know, for me, it can last up, up to maybe three or four months. And, and in, these days, I'm, I'm functional through my depression, just not just not as functional. <laughs> and I certainly, you know, but, but the thing that has helped me a lot, and I mean, anybody who suffers from depression, I mean, particularly people with less experience because they're younger, they haven't gone through it so many times, is that they end, we always get through the other side of it, and then life becomes more glorious than it was prior to the depression. That's what I find mm -hmm. because, I mean, I think I'm looking outside now, you know, on the porch and the trees that are out there. The other day we had, or last week, we had like a, a very heavy day of rain, you know, for Southern California, it was quite unusual. And looking out of the rain, I was like, wow, I didn't move to California for this. And it lasted, I think a couple of days but then the, the next day when it was all over and you know spring was back it was a day to be more grateful for than the three days prior that was exactly the same day and so i feel that with depression too i feel like oh you know life is fine life is good i guess you know we're going along with things and then I depression starts to creep in and it, it'll come unannounced i mean it's not it's not like well this happens this happens this happens and then depression comes it, it you know it sometimes comes out of nowhere and i suddenly started thinking oh well, i don't feel so good today oh i'm fine i'm fine and i do the things that i take sammy as a supplement i take vitamin b12 with, with folic acid I, I take those religiously because those are what helped me that's what i've worked you know uh, fish oil all of the things that help to, to stave it away on the physical level at least and so it starts to come in and i'm like oh no i deny it <laughs> i spend a few days going no i'm fine no i'm fine and i keep working on whatever i'm working on and then there's a moment a day or two later that i just go oh okay i'm depressed and then i accept it and i go okay i don't know how long this lasts but i have to i have to i have to be kind to myself during this period because I know I'm going to get through it because it's happened several times before. And, you know, I wonder if, if someone ever gave me the choice or other people who, who have this same issue to, to have lived your life without ever experiencing depression, would I choose that? Or would I choose to say, no, I'm per a person who suffers from depression, who has accepted it and who has learned and who continues to learn to deal with it, which has offered me an insight into something that I never otherwise would. Because the 75% who don't suffer, some of, many of them, I'm sure, understand that, you know, depression is something that's 
that they will never truly understand because sadness is not the same thing or grief is not the same thing, but they'll never truly understand what it is. They'll never understand why would a person want to end their own life? When people are fighting to save their lives when they're going through some physical thing that, that threatens to end their life and they do everything they can to keep their life, there are times when I think, whoa, well, if that was me, I'd be like, okay, maybe I only have like six months or a year. Cool. I mean, there are phases and not now. I mean, if, if you said that to me now, I'd probably be like, because I feel good now. But my father, for example, and, you know, I, I don't think my, my dad would mind me speaking about this because we're being so open who suffer terribly from depression you know, they say it's hereditary. Right. Um, I got a lot of good things from my father. <laughs> I love my father. Uh, you know, he passed away 18 years ago now. Uh, but for him, and, and this would be so hard for people to understand, I think, it seemed like a gift when he was given a terminal illness. Now, not, not completely. I'm following you, though. Yes. Yeah, but not completely. He was kind of like, oh, okay, I'm going to die prematurely. He was 66 when, 65 when he died. But it wasn't like, oh my God, this is the end. It was acceptance. Mm -hmm. And somebody said to me, someone in our family, I mean, I didn't say this, but I, I certainly concurred. In many ways, he wanted to go. And, you know, I think he, he, med he self-medicated with alcohol. Um, it worked for him from a certain time of day, to, you know, until <laughs> the evening, till he fell asleep. But then the next morning, you know, he needed to start over again in order to self-medicate. And, and people do that, but it's not, it's never going to get you. It's not the fix, is it? Unfortunately not. I no. wish it were because, you know, Alcohol is easy, easily accessible to all of us. And I stay away from it. I mean, it's not that I, I don't drink during these phases. Socially, I'll absolutely have a drink and enjoy it. And I think it's great. But if it were something that could cure depression or stave off depression on an ongoing basis, then whenever I feel it come from, you know, <laughs> kind of sideswipe me, Yes. And, you know, I take that few days to acknowledge that like, oh, I'm depressed. Well, if alcohol were the solution, because believe me, I did try in the early days, um, then I'd be fine with that. Because what's wrong with having a, a couple of drinks every night? Well, nothing unless, you know, you suffer from depression, in which case it's actually going to, you know, it's like, you know, make it worse. It's going to make it worse. It's and, the and, antithesis, and people don't realize that. It, it, yeah. I hear that over and over again from clients that it makes it feel better in the moment. Yes. Then the next day, it's back, and the shame is back, and the yes. negative self talk is back. Yes. So, self soothing of that, that type is not the solution. And you have, I just have to say, I was, my, my eyes were tearing, my heart was tearing up. You have offered us so much precious and courageous information for that I did not expect 
I mean, I'm, I am so grateful to you because you have explained things in ways that will resonate with listeners who don't understand if they're suffering from depression. Most people won't under, feel understood until they, hearing you talk because you've explained your situation and how you've navigated decades of depression and you are in a place not just of resignation, you're not in the place your father was of just coping on a day-to-day -day basis with alcohol. You're in a place where you're learning how to thrive. And, and the part where you were talking about, you were actually had the courage to look and say, if I had a chance to do it again, would I choose to be, to not know depression, to not know that? Or is depression part of what makes me the beautiful, creative, giving, helpful person, the light that you are. I mean, that's incredibly courageous to even entertain that idea. Well, you're very kind to <laughs> use all those complimentary adjectives on me. I do, I very much do appreciate it. And, and certainly I would not be an art, my dad was an artist, just like him, I would not, I mean, he had another job as well to, you know, to throw back to what we were talking about before, but I, I certainly, you know, certainly would not be as creative as I am without depression. I know that for sure, because it is the high, the highs that I go through. Cause I, I think I'm probably mild manic depressive, but controllable. Uh, and so I certainly get highs where I have trouble sleeping and I, I I work all day on a project and I can't stop and mm -hmm. um, and then you know there's the flip side of that 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 is the depression but I was diagnosed with manic depression um early on thankfully I didn't and 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 you know medication is good for some people they want to do it that's fine I chose not to go that route I'm glad that I didn't because I I found other ways to manage it and I didn't want to become reliant on it because my dad actually had had gone through you know being hospitalized and have have medication actually i'm not sure i should even say that even family members some family members don't even know that but i i'm glad that i didn't go that route but and also i didn't expect to talk about this either when when we just connected on zoom earlier we were like well do you have any questions maybe what we're going to talk about i was like hey let's just chat and so we never expected that we were going to talk no, we about didn't. It. yeah but i mean you know i'm i'm so glad to have an understanding ear to be able to share this because again the the stigma that is in our society and and also the the stigma that we carry ourselves as people who, who suffer from depression the only way we're going to mitigate that mitigate that is just is 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 to share and to say look we're we're people too <laughs> absolutely and i have to add want to add that not only do you have an understanding ear an understanding person here you have a person who has so much respect for you I have so much respect for what you're sharing, for so much of the information and the heart you have imparted. And you even saying the piece about the person admitting they have depression rather than sharing mm -hmm. that they have depression, right? Yeah. So many facets to your journey. 
And I too, I'm, I don't drink alcohol, I don't like alcohol, but I see now I have another way of looking at alcohol, even for clients and saying, hey, when you see that bottle of alcohol, just put the label on it that says depressant. Yeah. And that is, I, I never thought of that. And you have shared so much. And if you don't mind just pivoting for a minute, I'm not running away from the depression piece at all. I could stay here with you for hours and days and, and go deeper and deeper. And my heart feels the heaviness of, of your journey and, and the respect for your courage, mm -hmm. because people who like you are very careful to differentiate. Depression is not grief. Depression is not sadness. Depression is not the blues. Depression is walking around with a hundred pound weight on your shoulders and not knowing why it's there and not being able to get it off. Yeah. And I've never heard it put that way before. And that, that is a great help to me to also have that perspective um, and to have that imagery because that is, that, that is absolutely what it feels like. Yes. I so thank you. Um, my pivot, okay, now I'm crying. <laughs> <laughs> that was my goal. <laughs> to make you cry. <laughs> you, you achieved your goal. Thank you. Um, thank you. Um, so when we think about your creativity, and I just want to touch, I've, I've seen, I, I'm inspired by your filmmaking, one of your films, Holy Fail, just we, we enjoyed it and I had so much fun watching it and it's such good clean wholehearted fun right mm -hmm. that it's so tell me a little bit about your filmmaking and how that gives you joy and shares joys to shares joy with other people with families well I guess uh, as an entertainer it, it's it's sort of the next step from being a live performer being a comedian is to write comedic scripts. And so with The Holy Fail in particular, which is a comedy, my other films are, you couldn't really put them in the category of comedy exclusively, but this one you could. Um, it's, a, it's a desire to entertain, I think. It's just, I, I get a thrill from writing something that makes me laugh. So it's like, I suppose, I think about, you know, I was a huge Seinfeld fan when when it happened. And then when it ended, I felt sad there was going to be no more Seinfeld episodes. So one day I sat down and I wrote one because I missed the characters. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I sat down to the what Kramer says this and Jerry says this. And here I'm laughing, entertained by this, you know, si quote Seinfeld episode that, of course, never would see the light of day or that I would share with anyone. But I feel the same way, like when I came up with the characters for the Holy Fail, two particular characters that I came up with first were the, the police officers, the guards. And I started thinking about how they interacted with each other. And it kind of gave me, uh, I guess, um, a sense of lightness to be with these two people as I'm writing them. And then as it expanded, I feel like whenever I'm in a script in particular, I feel like I'm interacting with the characters myself and we're just kind of like having a good time or we're having a deep time or we're, you know, whatever this scene is, I feel like we're, 
we're having it. And the great thing about being a writer is, you know, you, you can guide the conversation. So you don't like what the other character says to the character you identify with. Well, you can change that, what that character says, or you can write a response. You can write a very well-crafted response that seems spontaneous back. And so I enjoy being in in the movie, so to speak, as I'm writing the script. Now, of course, it's hard work. As you know, as a writer, we do several drafts and there's structure and so many things we have to think about. But the first draft is what inspires me to do it because I enjoy that. I enjoy coming up with the idea. I enjoy discovering the characters. What I don't enjoy (laughs) is doing the subsequent drafts. The subsequent drafts are the hard work, but that's fine because then if I can get it to a point where it, it's good enough to film, then I get to actually work with, you know, other people and real actors and see it come to life. And I can entertain people in a broader sense than being in a room with a hundred or 200 people making them laugh. It, anybody in the world at this point can access it through Amazon prime or other streaming platforms and I had a friend actually just messaged me from Australia the other day who watched it and, and um, you know, gave me feedback on it. And I was like, wow, this is somebody I haven't seen in, in over 20 years who's watching this and, and, and is getting joy from it. And of course, that makes me feel good because I can bring joy to other people. And, and you mentioned families. And I think this comedy and I think my other films, too, could be watched by families. I mean, there's nothing in there that somebody might restrict. I mean, I'm not sure, maybe they're PG-13. <laughs> I don't really know, but, but they're certainly not R-rated. I've, I have no idea. You know, I mean, when, when there was a screening in Ireland at a film festival, it had its Irish premiere at a film festival in Cork. And my, most of my family came and kids, you know, young kids didn't watch it and they all enjoyed it. You know, they laughed and, Nobody, nobody complained. I mean, there are certain films that you don't want to watch with families, but I think if there are ones, it's one of those activities that can, that can bond families together. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And that's a piece that not just with your films, but I've had the pleasure of watching you during the pandemic um, Mm -hmm. perform Mm -hmm. music Mm -hmm. live by zoom. I think it was zoom, but anyway, Mm -hmm. it is amazing to me how you have both in film the writing and with your music that ability to create connection conversation Mm -hmm. sharing love laughter learning Mm -hmm. my husband and i talked for a good hour after we saw your film right and we were talking about the different characters and how this matt and the beautiful scenery and you're and one of the beautiful actors um not that there were more than but there was definitely jessica's definitely your, your girl is definitely a highlight in that film and so but what a gift you bring because the work that you do even when i think back to the beginning of the pandemic and that live performance i watched you and and here we were as a nation as a world not knowing what was coming next, mm-hmm. not knowing when we would see live music again or new music at all, right? And mm-hmm. there you were with people popping in and out with comments and watching you. And what a gift that was 
for my spirit and for other people's spirits watching the comments of, oh, life still exists. Mm -hmm. Owen is here. He's sharing with us. There's entertainment. Life is going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And and I think, you know, what, what you said about the connection, because certainly we were all making a connection at that point, and you and I had never met, but... But, you know, we connected through those comments and and I think I may even have said because when people were commenting, I remember I was saying their names and, and talking. And, and that was actually that particular show that you're talking about, I think, was at the very beginning of the pandemic. I think we were only a couple of weeks in, if I remember rightly. But the connection that you spoke of, I think that's the motivation that we certainly have as entertainers and artists is to make a connection with other people. And that's maybe the meaning of life. <laughs> you know, what is okay. what brings us happiness is the connection with other people, you know, and, and to circle back to the depression for a moment, it is a connection with other people that can help us through that. Yeah. Not necessarily somebody, somebody coming to cheer you up or make you laugh, but somebody to just sit there be with you and know you're going through pain and not trying to change that but to understand that it's like somebody who's got bad arthritis in their knee or their hands or or they've sprained their ankle and they're in pain well there's nothing that person can do in that moment to ease that pain there's nothing they can change about it because they're not a, a doctor or they don't have magic healing powers but to be with that person in their pain in that moment and to be present is the best thing that anybody can ever do. But to judge and to question and to try to change and why don't you try this? And we all get sad. And I remember that time when this happened and, and I was depressed and, oh, yeah, I, I thought of one time and I, I want to write about this because oh, I can't believe we're back at the depression again, but look, <laughs> just, I guess the connection, connection is the connection. So, um, to, you know, to, to connect and, 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 and be with that person in spite of not truly understanding what they're going through um, and not pretending to understand what they're going through. And so I think with the, with the art and the connection to family, if I can connect through the screen or however or even connect with the actors that i'm working with of course on the time uh, you know which which is the payoff for me is is you know the hard work because there is so much hard work the actual connection that i get with the people that i'm with whom i'm working on the set is is payment enough for the work and and then to be able to connect with people beyond that even who who I'm not present with at the time is also the feeling of connection that I that I think we seek, you know, and I am with you 100%. I think kind of a strange segue into something else, but it's related. I was asked the other day to review a psychological test and I was mm -hmm. looking at it. And one of the questions was, and they were framing it to the negative, but something to the effect of, would life have no meaning for you without friends or family? Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, how could we answer that otherwise? Yes. <laughs> but it was meant to, to make you feel, I believe, as this, 
as if you were deficient if that mm -hmm. was a priority for you because maybe it's supposed to be life would be more meaningful if i had a lot of money or you know success but instead to me i agree with you it's the friends it's the family it's the connection yes. that is the most important and i love how you brought the depression back into it again to give it one more pat on the back of how important it is for listeners to know for, with the way you're bringing this forth as material for us to talk about that someone coming into a room with someone who's depressed, it's not about fixing it. It's not about making them get over it or under it or above it or anything. Mm -hmm. It is, as you said, it is about being willing to be there. Mm -hmm. You don't need to give the hot water bottle, but yes. you can be there. And sometimes being there is either sitting in the darkness with someone. Sometimes it is watching a movie with them because comedy has so many healing powers of its own, mm -hmm. but not forcing that, that knowing yes. that, I, yes, please. Oh, no, yes, well, what I want to say about the, about the forcing aspect and the laughter it is interesting that even in the deepest depression, we can laugh at a moment. Something will make us laugh. And then then it's it is a moment of reprieve. Yes. But but forced someone trying to make you laugh. But, you know, that's that's really what we it's really not what we need. But if we can be in a situation and, and it's so it's so strange where you can actually be suicidal and you can actually be thinking about how to kill yourself, going fantasizing about all the ways that I could end my life right now and then see something or hear something that makes you smile or makes you laugh. I mean, it's, you know, during depression, your, your face and your whole being is so heavy. I described it to somebody one time as mercury in your veins. It's like you have mercury in going through your veins that you, you know, you, you feel poisoned, you feel heavy. I guess it's like that, you know, that 80 pound weight or whatever. And so to, to to smile you generally would kind of have to force it and then you're expending energy if you're putting on a show in front of your friends or you're you know i don't want to make my friend feel bad so i'm gonna then you're spending energy that you don't have you're using up the reserves of, of you're, you're already running on empty yes. and and so if something happens and you end up laughing or smiling through that it's a miracle and it can happen. I mean, a film or, or something you're reading or something you connect with, it can make you do that. And then somebody might say, well, they can't be that bad. I mean, I saw them and then they laughed. Well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, that, that doesn't take from, you know, the, that is maybe 0.5, of, of the whole trajectory of that phase you're going through, you know? Absolutely. It's just that it still exists in you. There's this big darkness and yes. up through that darkness, a little bubble of light can come and yes. somebody to think that that little bubble of light is permanent. No, it's fleeting. It's still there. Yes. But then the darkness comes back in. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's, it, and it's a gift. If it's a gift for that little moment, absolutely it is. And sometimes, I mean, I know somebody who I'm not close to him, but he's, he's a sibling of a good friend of mine. And uh, my friend was telling me about her 
sibling. I'm not easy. I'm not even using pronouns now because I don't want to give away anything about don't somebody. identify. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so this friend who shall name genderless and nameless at this point, <laughs> this person's sibling uh, also suffers from depression. And, uh, you know, I'm privy to that information because we have these discussions, but I don't know this person very well. I know my friend very well. And one day, I met this person and I said to my friend, wow, this sibling of yours is really in good form. Like, oh, I thought, and this person said, <laughs> it was a good day. That person was having a good day. And that happens. We can be, and for some reason, God knows why, you can have a few hours or a few minutes or even a whole day or maybe even two days where you go, oh my God, I'm cured. I'm over it. It's like in Los Angeles, we have this thing that's the, you know, the fake spring. Yes. That comes or the fake summer. We go, the winter is over. And every year we think that, you know, it's over. The cold is gone. We don't turn the heat on anymore. And then suddenly, you know, you wake up one more one morning and it's well by Southern California turns, it's cold. And you're just like, what? No, this isn't. And it's I think it's the same with those those moments that of reprieve that we have, where it's like, oh, we think that's it. And then when often when I get through, at least in the past, when I get through a phase like that of depression, I think, oh, I'm going to be fine forever. I can't imagine me ever that ever happening again. But of course, time and experience tells you that, you know, don't be so, um, don't be so cocky. <laughs> it, uh... <laughs> you are making me think of, and I'm just going to quick blurb on it so it doesn't stay on me, but I lost somebody very, very dear to me recently. And mm -hmm. going through the depression, as you said, my husband would say, honey, come sit down and, you know, let's watch something funny or whatever. And I'm not a big TV person. And so and then I'd find myself, you know, in that gray space that you live in all the time. Right. Or, or very often. But that's what depression. It's just a much shortened space of what you live with. I don't want to say forever, but in a lifelong way. And then I would laugh and I would think, oh, maybe I'm done with my grief. And then it would be boop, back down again. And interestingly enough, then I would feel guilty for even laughing because yeah. I would think, well, I shouldn't be laughing. I'm supposed to be grieving, yes. right? Yeah. But how interesting it is what the mind does. Mm -hmm. And then you get out the reprieve that you're talking about. And I know mine's time limited because I will not grieve her. I will grieve her forever. I will not live in grief forever. Yeah, well... <laughs> I can be with you. That's the closest I can get to really getting what you're going through. But you've dealt with it for decades from the time you were a young child, a teenager mm -hmm. in a much heavier, heavier, more intense way. And that's why I go back to the piece of courage and respect for you is mm -hmm. what courage it takes to live with that and not give up what courage it takes Thank you. And, you know, I'm sorry for your loss of your friend. I, I know that's a hard thing to go through for everybody. My sister, uh, sister oh, and friend. So anyway, but just, yes. So I'm that's. So, I'm, I'm so sorry. Oh, um, no. 
to hear that. And 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 I sh I should qualify just to you know where you say that there's a short phase for some people and and people you know deal with depression for a lifetime. I I should add and for anybody who's listening who who's going through depression, I hope this is of help. The bouts of depression get shorter and less frequent as I get older, and I've learned to deal with it. So life is better each year each year because i because i understand it more and and you know getting back to what i said much earlier about the childhood remembering when i heard uh, that your childhood are the happiest years of your life and thinking oh my god what what kind of life is this going to be if this is the happiest i look back now and i think my adult years have been the happiest of, of my life and 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 of course, not all of them. And of course, you know this this weight on my back that that comes back, but it it comes back far less frequently now. And that was worth holding on for. Thank you. Yeah. And I want to emphasize for our listeners mm -hmm. what you're saying that it has gotten better year by year, not because you've ignored it, not mm -hmm. because you've self-soothed over it with substances, but because you've faced it, you've paid attention to it, and you've learned through hard work how to manage it. Yes, and I've sought help. I haven't done this alone. So, you know, I've, I've had uh, the help of professionals, and I've connected with people who go through the same thing so that we can talk openly about it, knowing each other's experiences. And, and that is important, the, the knowing that you're not alone. Uh, and I, I know we talked about that earlier, but, but that is a huge part of it, to know that you're not the only one and to seek help. I mean, as I said, I, there was a huge stigma when I was younger about seeking help, but it got to a point when I was 20 that there was no other choice. The other choice was to, you know, en end up in the bottom of the river. That was, they were maybe the two choices. Mm -hmm. And so seeking help, like if somebody breaks their leg, they're not gonna hop down the street and say, oh no, I don't need help. No, no, well, me, no, my leg's broken. Well, no, this is fine. Oh no, I'm too embarrassed to go seek help. But with depression, if we think we're, if we think we should be just like everybody else and we shouldn't, and there's a stigma to this, and and we think we don't need help well then we're fooling ourselves and you know some people thankfully in this country we we are advanced enough in the medical field and 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 in in the um mental health field enough to know that help is available and there are places that we can seek it very easily their their phone numbers all you, all somebody's got to do now is just you know get on their phone and, and google suicide help and there's a line that'll come up right away there's a chat that and 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 that is wow i mean what a gift in in our time and uh, we are making such roads yes new roads, inroads, right? Where yes. there are new treatments on the horizon. Yes. Ones that 
I don't want to give any brand names or anything, but definitely mm-hmm. new treatments on the horizon for long-term depression, for many mental health issues that we still have a long way to go. We still have such a long way to go to fight stigma. And again, I'm going to pay attention if anyone says ever, you know, to me, hey, he admitted he had depression or he admitted, I'm going to say, well, you wouldn't admit you have a broken leg, right? (laughs) And I love that. So my goodness, please, Owen, as we prepare to wind down, Mm -hmm. tell me anything else another few two three tidbits that you would like to share i could go on with you for hours like i said earlier but two or three tidbits that you'd really like to give to our listeners today or as if you haven't given enough well thank you so much dr carla i mean i think we've we've talked a lot longer than we had planned (laughs) and uh, it has been a joy to share with you today and and to to talk to you about all of this and I, i appreciate your having me on your program today. I guess what I would like to share, and I I didn't expect that I would be sharing this, but given the conversation that we have had unexpectedly, is that anybody who's going through, uh, you know, depression or any kind of challenge like that, know that it's it's not forever. You know, I I, I suffered uh, carpal tunnel uh, recently and I'm only getting over it now. And it's been so frustrating. And not being able to play music like the way I played, not being able to practice, not being able to wash the dishes at home. That's not been frustrating for me, but that's that's actually been a joy. But thankfully, it's temporary. You know, I can get through. I've had help. I've been to see specialists, just like I have with my depression. It's it's the same thing. And it's not that it's never going to come back. Perhaps it will. But there's always there's always better choices than the worst choices. And there's always choices. We all, we always have choices in life. I mean, if we're in a job, which I was, that you absolutely hate, and I absolutely hated that job, and I said, well, I have no choice because I have to pay my rent. And I, I remember, actually, it's, it's actually kind of funny because I got involved in, quote, like a cult years ago when I was in my early 20s. And I, I went to, you know, meetings and I didn't I didn't get so involved that I was sucked in all the way. But it was certainly of interest to me what they had to say. And I was looking for the answer, you know, because I didn't like my job and I wanted to quit my job. And I said to the, you know, quote, guru, I said, so, you know, this spiritual thing where we have to find our path. And, you know, so so I should just quit my job because then, you know, then the right thing will happen or however I put it. And he turned to me, looked at me and he said, well, then you wouldn't be able to buy food or pay your rent. I thought, oh, yeah, like what I was looking for was the, the panacea for my life's problems, quit my job and just, you know, and so. We may not, and of course I couldn't quit my job. I mean, he made total sense. I had to keep my job because I had rent and I needed to buy food. I need to keep a roof on my head. Of course, we all have those commitments and those things that we need to do. But, and we may not have that choice right now, but what I found through my very windy and sometimes challenging journey is that if we make the choice now for a goal in the future, and we work towards that goal, and we don't do anything that's in conflict with that goal, and if we do something that's in conflict with that goal, we recognize that it's in conflict with that goal, and we choose 
to not do that again or to avoid doing that again. And we continue on the path towards that goal, albeit not a direct path, because it's very hard to stay on a direct path towards a goal because life keeps pulling us in all sorts of different directions. But if we generally meander towards that goal as best we can, then most likely we're able to do it. Like if, if, if you told my 19 year old self that I would be talking to a psychologist author in California on a device <laughs> that fits in <laughs> on my neck, about my journey as a filmmaker and entertainer, a writer, I would have thought I would have been bowled over and stunned at that possibility because I, I, I couldn't see it. I couldn't see that possibility. And, and things that are, have happened in my life in even the last five, 10 years, I couldn't have imagined being possible 10 years prior. But I, I've learned that that setting those goals, however small, yes. are important to our sense of well-being and our, our, our sense of, of fulfillment and happiness. Because I think it's an Oprah quote, if you aim at nothing, you're going to hit it every time. And, and it's, it's, it's not, and it doesn't feel good to rest on your laurels. Like somebody said that to me recently, oh, well, you have these films out, you did this, you did that. I go, yeah, well, I, I, I could sit there and go, yeah, that's great. And aside from, you know, the need to make a living, the need to actually have an achievable goal in our future is so important. Yes. Uh, you know, and we see these people who are hugely successful writers or, or whatever they do, you know, they own businesses or they you know, they can retire and, and, and play golf. But if that's not giving them fulfillment, they need to keep going on, on, on what that is. And so I guess if what I'm trying to say through all that is it, it never stops. I always thought, oh, I would reach. I, I thought when I was a comedian, once I had my one hour act that like the headliners had yeah. and they would go and they would do their act and audiences would laugh and then they would go home and then they would just sit around for and sleep and eat or whatever for the other 23 hours of the day. And then they would do that same act. And then like, wow, imagine when I get to that point, my life's going to be amazing. Absolutely. Well, I did get to that point and I found very quickly that there is no joy in sharing the same material night after night and sitting around for the other 20, 23 hours going, look at me, I get to sit on my couch and do whatever I want. And I can make a living just performing one hour a day and putting no work into that. Because, you know, as a comedian, you, you, you're playing to different audiences most of the time. So you can do the same material. Mm. And I found that I actually, a friend of mine who had a carpet business, I remember calling him up saying, hey, are you looking for someone to work with you? Because I would really like to do some physical labor right now. And he goes, what? Because I had been on this, you know, these TV shows. I was actually getting known as a, as a comedian. I had all this work. I had as much money as I needed um, you know, within reason. I mean, I wasn't looking to buy houses or anything at that point in my 20s. But I remember calling him up just going, 
you know, I, I would really like to, to work with you and, and lay carpets. And he was like, what? Why would you want? And I was like, I don't know. I just really want to do it. And then he said, I don't know. Like I have some people. And then I went to see him at work one day and Dave said, oh yeah, this is Owen, my, my comedian friend. And a couple of his coworkers said, are you the guy that wanted to actually do this as a job, but you make a living as a comedian? And I said, yeah. And they were like, this? Like what? Like what we wouldn't give to have your job to be able to work one hour a day and make the kind of living you do. And that moment made me understand why rich people say wealth doesn't bring you happiness. No, it doesn't. Or, or somebody, although, hey, if somebody's unhappy, not happy with their wealth and they want to pass it this way, I'm totally fine with that. <laughs> but, but I get why, why certain successes and certain places that people reach, they think that, that it's going to be the ultimate goal in their life. And it turns out to be the very opposite. It turns out to be a place from which they need to start again to another level. And, and I think that's just life. That's something that I've accepted because I mean, so many people I would imagine who are in professions that they don't like think their life is going to start as soon as. As soon as whatever, right? Yes, exactly. Owen, oh, it's just such a beautiful point because it is purpose. You're mm -hmm. talking about purpose. having purpose in life. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think that is one of the pieces that contributes to some, some not all mental health issues. And mm -hmm. when we don't have a sense of purpose, mm -hmm. and generally purpose with some passion in there, right, is mm -hmm. a lovely mix. And I actually talk about that in my first two books, Joy from mm -hmm. Fear, and then my second book, Aging Joyfully, where it is such an important part of our mental health, because mm -hmm. Like you said, if you get there, and I'm just going, absolutely, because you think you got there, and mm -hmm. it's, well, what now? Yes. And so we want to keep going with purpose and growing with purpose, rather yes. than, as you said, there's, I liked this comment, it ought to be in one of your films, a piece you said where there's always a better choice than the worst choice, right? Yes. Something like that. And yes. I think one of the best choices is to continue to do the work to find purpose. Yes, and, and interesting, I'm glad you used the, the, the word purpose because that's what I was trying to say without actually finding the correct word. And that, that's exactly it. Uh, and it doesn't have to be a great purpose. Mm. We don't have to achieve great things. You know, a friend of mine said to me when I was going through my depression, and I couldn't work. I mean, sometimes I'm so incapacitated. I just really can't do anything of value or, or not. I mean, a lot of the times it's just, okay, this is it. I'm incapacitated in so many ways. And a friend of mine said, look, you don't have to be achieving anything. Congratulate yourself for getting out of bed in the morning Absolutely. because it's difficult. When you're in a depression, getting out of bed is one of the hardest things you can ever do, which is a story. So I took his advice and I said, okay, I'm in bed now. I don't want to face the day. I don't even want to open my eyes. Here's my goal. I'm going to get out of bed. I don't do it immediately, but it makes me feel better already to think there is an achievable goal ahead of me. Now, if my bladder doesn't force me to do it first, <laughs> uh, 
I, I, I will lie there and, and build up to it and think, wow, that's going to be like, that's really going to be something. It's going to be hard, but I'm going to do it. Yeah. And then maybe I'll make like a false attempt and go, well, it didn't happen that time. I'll try it again. And then when I actually sit sideways on the bed, I think to myself, wow, I achieved part of the goal. And now, and then I stand up and I go, wow, look at this now. I'm in the living room. And then I think, oh my God, maybe I can make some breakfast. And I think, well, no, that's a little much to, that's a little much to, uh, to, to, to hope for at this point. So I'm just going to sit down for a little longer, but my go- my next goal is to eat something. And so I'm not achieving anything that people would say, but people do like with their motor skills, you know, they don't consider it to be achievements, but whatever point we're at in our life, anything that gives us purpose, as you said, is an achievement and we can build on those things. And so, I mean, if, if somebody is again in a, in a situation in their life for whatever reason that they don't like, they may not be able to move from that at that moment. Or if somebody is looking for a passion that they don't have, because many people don't have a passion in their life. They don't have a profession that they're dying to do. They don't have a sport that they really want to play. And and I often times have been envious of those people at certain times, because I think, wow, if I had been happy to just work in a factory and, and go there and get my wages at the end of the week and watch TV and eat dinner and see my friends or family or whatever, my life would have been so much easier uh, because a quote I read, and I forget where I read it now, but the easiest thing, it was a writer talking to other writers, the easiest thing to do in life is to not write. <laughs> <laughs> God, what a great quote. <laughs> That's a great quote. It is. Because how hard is writing? It's it is hard. I mean, as we spoke about earlier, the first draft can be fun, but then you're like, oh my God, what have I done to myself? Now I have to do draft after draft. This is this is going to be so difficult. But it's that purpose. And uh, a friend of mine from many years ago told me that all she wanted in life was to find her passion. That was her goal. She thought her passion was this, but it's not. Uh, and we, I meet people all the time that say to me, my God, you have a passion and you follow your passion. You're so lucky. I've never had that kind of passion. I wish I had that kind of passion. And you know, my response, not that I always verbalize it, is that sometimes I wish I didn't have it because it makes me, it makes me feel bad when I'm not doing it. It makes me work much harder than I otherwise would if I had the nine to five that I used to have, or these days, you know, people have the the nine to 12 midnight or whatever some people have. Unfortunately, our society has come to that. But, but I mean, if somebody doesn't have a passion uh, or something they see as a, as a great purpose in life, you know, because we, we put people on pedestals that have these purposes of, you know, creating the next electric car or whatever. We can't all be those people. If we all were those people, what kind of a world would it be? But we're all playing our parts, you know, to to the degree at which we're being guided by our desires. So if if, if we don't have a desire for a certain thing that we wish we had, well, we're not that person. I mean, we are the person that we are. 
And we all, I think, wish we had something that we don't have. And I saw a musician last night who's a neighbor of mine, um, who's, you know, one of the greatest guitarists. I don't know. He makes these top 10 lists of great guitarists all the time. But I, I know him as, as a neighbor. And when I first met him, I, I met him outside my house and we were chatting for a while. And he told me he was a musician. And I said, oh, I'm a musician. And we're talking as if we're peers. Right. Because, I, right. you know, <laughs> he's a super nice guy. But I saw him play last night. He he got married and they had a, you know, an, uh, the day after the wedding party and he played with his band. And oh, my God, what an incredible performance they put on. And uh, me and my other neighbor, who's a guitarist, and we're musicians. We just looked at each other and we look at him and who among us that, you know, pursue that passion, wish we had that gift. Uh, don't don't wish that we had that gift rather (laughs) or doesn't wish we had that gift of course we do wow i see singers that come up on these americans got talent a a friend of mine was a coach to one of those child prodigies that that was one of the finalists in american got america's got talent she was 11 what a gift she was unbelievable she was like what when I was 11, I don't think I could even tie my own shoes. I certainly couldn't sing. I couldn't, I certainly couldn't, I couldn't hold a tune. Uh, but yet I call myself a singer. I, I have a weekly gig I do here at a local club in Pasadena, you know, as, as a professional singer. But, and I, 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 but I see other people and I go, why didn't I have that gift? And, you know, Jess's uncle, who's been studying guitar, for 30 plus years often talks about this guy who was on America's Got Talent, who's who's 19, who's just like this prodigy who's been not even as long, not even alive as long as, you know, Jess's uncle has been playing guitar. And I think we can all relate to that. It's like all of us are in a situation that's not as good as what somebody else has but better than what somebody else has. I mean, we're all somewhere in there where we can find people who are more gifted or luckier or things seem to go better for, but we can also look the other way and just go, you know what? There's no other journey that anybody else is on that's like this, but me. And whatever I do with it, however I find my purpose, you know, be it wake up and and cook, eggs over easy in the morning as opposed to scrambled there's there's a purpose and and as long as as you said as long as it's bringing you fulfillment we're moving forward and and that's what's important so to bring it to a close for our listeners is as as you listen to owen and think about oh you know here he is achieving all of these amazing things and who am i to achieve them and owen's looking at people in his life saying oh but they're achieving amazing things in in music that i'm not able to do achieve and when we look at our own selves and say but let's bring it back to me right we don't all need to be owen the world doesn't have enough room for all that you know owen is owen right and so i i think the most beautiful one of the, the most beautiful pieces of this last portion is to remember if you're suffering from depression, anxiety, mental health issues or not, that they don't need to get in your way. You doing small things, which Mm -hmm. may feel like very big, big, ginormous things like getting out of bed. That Mm -hmm. is 
good. That is right for you. That is a success for you. And when we all contribute in our own ways to the best that we can, that moment, right, that day, then we are doing good things and wonderful things. And I was going to paraphrase a Mother Teresa quote, that's one of my, I just love it because it lives in my heart, that we don't need to do great things. We can do small things with great love. And when we do small things with great love, that is incredible. That yes. is everything, doing small things every day to the best of your ability. That is living with love. Oh, my goodness. Owen, oh, please tell me, where can our listeners find you? Well, I have a website. It's owendara.com, O-W-E-N-D-A-R-A.com. And on there is links to my music online, also the trailers to my films and where they can be rented online. Also... Well, my book, I was selling online. I, I wrote a book about my childhood uh, called White Horses in Irish Childhood. And it's it's my journey growing up in Ireland and, you know, depression and, and the, those challenges are certainly a big part of that book. Also, I, I don't sell that on my website because, you know, as I said earlier, there's very personal stuff that, you know, people are are very private over there. And so I said I would never publish it while my parents were alive. Mm-hmm. And uh, my mother, thankfully, is going strong at 85. Uh, and out of respect for her, um, you know, I, I self-publish and I sell it at my shows. But it is not available online. So I guess if somebody really wants the book, they I have a contact on the website and they they could contact me and I would be happy to send it to them. But for now, um, it's, you you know, you can access the information to the, to my films and also to my music. And there's a couple of videos up there of some of my live performances also. Oendara.com. That's correct. Easy, easy. Okay. Thank you so much for taking your time and energy to be with us today. It has been phenomenal to spend time with you. Thank you, Owen. I really appreciate it. And as we conclude today's podcast, I'd like to thank Familius Publishing for bringing this podcast to us today. They have been of great support and would be thrilled if you'd subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review on iTunes and social media. If you'd like more wonderful Familius content, be sure to visit us at Familius.com, where you will find our Habit Hub blog, as well as a spectacular selection of books for families. And one step at a time, we can and and will make the world a happier place. I thank you for sharing your time with me, Dr. Carla Marie Manley. It has been a joy and a true pleasure. And in closing, be well and shine, 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 as only you can.